You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. You guys are good. It's so good to be here with you today. So I just want to stop, pause for a second before we jump into everything and just say thank you to our volunteers. You may not know, this past weekend, we're getting phone calls and text messages. People are dropping like flies. Either they're sick, their kids are sick, somebody around them is sick, or whatever it might be, and we're scrambling all weekend to try to make it happen, to pull it together, and we're here, and it's happening, and your kids are gonna be loved on and served. Your students are gonna be loved on and served. There's worship happening. The slides are happening. Many of you are still leading life groups and trying to figure out how to do it even via Zoom. Can we just stop and say thank you to the church for being the church? So good, so good. The other thing is, I'm really excited about this message because I think God has a word for some of us today, and I don't know exactly who you're going to be, but here's how I know. There's a gentleman who came to our church for a while, uh, a a few years back, and then he moved, and then he moved to Texas, and so he's not here anymore. Occasionally, he goes online. God inspired this man, I actually talked about it, inspired him a couple years ago to just send me passages of scripture, and to this day, I've never stopped and asked him, why do you do that? He never had an answer. And he did it for about six months, and he did it a couple times a week, uh, sometimes only a couple times a month, but every time he did it, it was unbelievable. It was as if God had spoke directly to him, and he then sent me that. It doesn't make any sense. And I was in a really hard season personally, and every time he'd send a passage, it was exactly the encouragement, the challenge, the word from the Lord I needed to hear. And right as I was kind of like out of that season, all of a sudden, he stopped And I never told him, hey, I'm good now. You can stop sending those. He had no idea. Literally, he had no idea. No idea. He was just partnering with God. And the reason I tell you that is this morning, out of nowhere, I haven't heard from him like a month or so, he sent me my exact text for this morning. And I was praying, God, would you use this message to speak to, encourage, challenge those who listen today? So all I know is I think God's up to something. Like God's about to do something cool. And so I want to take part in that. So... Without any further ado, let's just go ahead and jump in. Here's my question for you. Why are you here? Why are you here? I don't mean like here this morning, hopefully you're here to worship God, or maybe you don't even know who God is, or it's been a long time, and somebody invited you here, you're like, I'm wondering the same thing. But like, why are you here? When I was a young boy, uh, I decided I wanted to find the cure for cancer. And part of that is, I had family members who went through cancer, and I'd heard a lot of news articles, my parents talk about it, cancer was a bad deal. When I was in fourth grade, though, I got my first C, and uh, it was in science, and that was probably the first sign that maybe this isn't what God's calling me to. When I got into middle school and high school, I really struggled with chemistry and biology, and it just became abundantly obvious God was not calling me into the science field whatsoever. But I still didn't know exactly what God wanted to do with me. Well, about that same time frame, uh, I was a young boy. Again, I grew up at church. My parents had a family rule. We go to church every Sunday. In fact, we went most Sunday nights, most Wednesday nights, most all the time anyway. But that was the family rule. So, didn't matter if you were sick or not, you were going to church. In fact, I remember one time I was sick, and my parents let me sit in the car the entire time. Don't worry, the car wasn't running, and it was warm out, even though it was in Northeast Ohio. It was like one month of the year, it was that month. Anyway, and I remember then trying to fake it in the future, like, oh, this would be great, I'll sit in the car. My parents would be like, no, you can just go in, you'll be all right. So I was probably a super spreader, I don't know. Anyway, the whole point was, like, church was a part of my life. But I found church to be extremely boring. Not like all of you, because you didn't, you know, your preacher versus, you know, my preacher. Okay, I'm glad you think that's funny. Anyway, so what I did is my sister volunteered the two and three-year-olds. And so what I started doing is I was like 11, 12 years old. I started going, ooh, I can volunteer in the two and three-year-olds and I could skip going to church. 
And so I did that, and it was this great plan. And what happened is over time, like, I got, found out that I actually was really good at it. And I would just help out and play with the kids and whatever. The kids love me and I love them. It was wonderful. And then what happened is one day my teacher was kind of sick. She wasn't feeling great. And she's like, hey, Matt, can you teach the lesson today? I'm like, I don't know anything about the lesson. What are you, what are you talking about? And what happened is uh, she's like, Matt, you were like, you know, at this point, whatever, 14, 15, 16, whatever I was at the time. And she's like, you got this. So I just talked about of like what was in front of me and what I'd known my whole life. And like, you know, it worked because they're two and the three and they don't really know if what I'm doing is good or not. It was fine. It worked. I showed up and I loved them and it was enough. And then what happened was my youth pastor came to me at one point. He said, hey, uh, I want to start a once a month thing for our high schoolers. Would you be willing to help me lead that? Because I got other responsibilities at the church. And so he just handed it to me. I had no idea what I was doing. Some of the things I taught were absolutely wrong. They weren't heresy kind of wrong. And it's like Jesus wasn't God, but they were not. If I look back now, and some of them were so embarrassing, just young and silly and immature. And oh, I had no idea what I was doing. No idea. But here's the thing. All of that, you know what God did with it? He used it to prepare me for where I am today. My highs, my lows, my embarrassing moments, my bad motives, all of it, all of it was training ground for where I am today. And I wouldn't be here on stage teaching all of you if God hadn't done all of that in me, if I had not surrendered me to him to use all of that for his glory. This is kind of what Paul's trying to get to. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Ephesians 4, verse 1. A prisoner for the Lord. Now, Paul wrote many of what we call his epistles. Epistles just like a, a fancy Bible way of saying letter. His letters to the churches. And many of them he wrote from prison. So he may literally be saying, you know, as a prisoner, literally I'm a prisoner, but he's trying to help you understand. Even his current bad context situation, God is Lord over even this. So even as a prisoner for the Lord, I'm a prisoner. In other places he uses the phrase bondservant or slave. And the whole idea is, since I've been rescued, since I've been redeemed, I give him everything. I literally serve at his pleasure, at his leisure. I do whatever he calls me to do whenever he calls me to do it. And then he's urging us, you live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Callings are funny, aren't they? What calling have we received as followers of Christ? There are those in the Christian faith who would say there is a very, very, very specific calling. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it. And that creates a lot of anxiety, doesn't it? I don't think this is scriptural. I don't think it's biblical. When God doesn't give a very specific calling, you aren't going to be able to miss it. And I would use Jonah and Moses just as two examples of such a situation. You know, God calls Jonah, says, go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, mm, see ya, I'm going the other direction. God's like, no, you aren't. <laughs> You're going to Nineveh. Well, you got a choice. You don't have to go to Nineveh. You can die. Your choice. Okay, I'll go to Nineveh. That's kind of how Jonah reads. Go ahead and read it for yourself later. Moses, which we'll start here in just a couple weeks, right? God goes to Moses. Moses, you're gonna go back to Egypt. No, I don't wanna do that. Send somebody else. No, you're going. No, please send somebody else. Okay, fine, I'll send Aaron. And you, you're still going. So when God does have a specific call over your life, you aren't gonna get away from it. You can let go of any anxiety, any fear you might be carrying about whether you missed your calling. You did not miss your calling. So what is our calling? In order to understand whatever it is Paul means in Ephesians 4, the best way to get that is to go back and read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Imagine that. But we don't have time for all of that. So I just want to look at a few things Paul says that's going to give us handles on what is our calling as a people. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. I brought this up last week. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'll give you some context. But this is kind of leading to what we read last week in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about the fact that we are all in a battle. We live in a battlefield. It's raging all around us all the time. You may not always know it. You may not always feel it, but it is happening. And Paul is kind of laying a foundation. He's saying the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's actually our enemy, what the Bible calls Satan. He is the ruler of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is his domain. And we, the Bible says, Peter says it this way later in 1 Peter, he says, we are just foreigners, strangers passing through. We're here for a short time, and we're going to move on to the next thing, eternal life with God. But while we're here, this is his domain. Now, the irony is what God is doing is he's launching, birthing a kingdom in the middle of somebody else's kingdom. It's a kingdom in enemy territory. That's the concept here. And what, what Paul's trying to get to is there was a point where we were on the wrong team. That's the whole idea. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, do dead things do much? No, of course not. Dead things are dead. They stayed dead. And that's where we were, apart from Jesus. I love this because Paul already knows the church in Ephesus gets this, but he's reminding them of this truth so they don't lose sight of it. There is a spirit who is at work in this world and in those who are disobedient, and we used to be one of them. He goes on, in fact, he says, all of us lived among them, this world, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, the wrath here is literally the wrath of God. And what Paul is trying to get to is, because we were opposed to God, because we were literally, Paul says in Romans chapter five, we were enemies of God, we were sitting under and deserving of God's wrath. Now, that's not the end of the story, but the end of the story, you can't fully appreciate if you don't get this part of it. There's a concept in our world today, that like, you know, I'm messed up, you're messed up, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all broken people, so what? And that's not at all the way the scripture says it. The scriptures say, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all broken, all of us, we're all messed up, and therefore we were dead in our transgressions, and therefore we were deserving of God's wrath. But... The very next verse says, and this is a big but. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Yeah, thank you. One person went, amen, right? Yes. So the end of the story is not that I'm a sinner. The end of the story is not that I was disobedient. The end of the story is not that I was deserving of wrath. The end of the story, if I allow it to be the end of my story, is that God in his infinite grace and mercy has made me alive. I'm no longer dead. I'm now alive. And he goes on. He says, it is by grace you have been saved. Grace literally equals unmerited favor. 
means God's face is turned towards me. God loves me. God desires a relationship for me. God wants me to be healthy and thriving in this world. He is for me, not against me. And so therefore, no weapon formed against me shall prosper because God in his infinite grace, not because I earned it, because I didn't. I was a sinning transgressor. I deserved wrath. But because God is good and God is merciful and God is kind, he didn't give me what I deserved. He gave me Jesus instead. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, by the way, we're roughly 2,000 years after this, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that, my friends, is what the Bible calls good news. Good news. But Paul, like me, because he's a preacher, he doesn't want to just say something once and be super clear. Paul's very not clear. Paul wants to say something again and again and again and then come at it. It's like, it's like holding a beautiful diamond or something. Like, ooh, look at that angle. Ooh, look at that. Ooh, look how. You see that shiny? Ooh, I didn't see that there. That's how he sees the gospel. So he just repeats himself and uses some similar words and some different words. He goes on. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. And how? By working really hard, you got saved. Good job. No, it's by grace. Through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, if you can come to Jesus and save yourself, you wouldn't need a savior. If you could clean up your act and get rid of all the worst parts of you on your own, you wouldn't need a savior. And that's still true whether you've been a Christian for a day, a week, a month, a year, or a hundred years. You still need a savior. Praise God, he gave us one. But here's perhaps the most powerful part, and we miss this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is so cool. Because what Paul is trying to drive towards is God has a calling just for you. But that calling is not what you think it is. It's not a duty, it's not a responsibility, it's not a burden. The calling comes out of a relationship, comes out of an identity, comes out of this idea that God crazy loves us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter three, Paul goes on and he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Let me just stop there for a second. Part of what Paul is dealing with in his day and the church in Ephesus is a lot of different people are coming to faith in Jesus. You've got Jews, and they've got a very specific way of looking and understanding God because of their Old Testament training. Then you've got Gentiles, many of the pagan Roman religions who are starting to believe in this God of grace, and it's like, I don't know what to do with it, but I, don't, I know that I don't want to be a 35-year-old man getting circumcised. I know I don't want that. And, but like, what does God want for me, and what does God desire for me? And there's these battles. Can you imagine that? People battling in the church. And then you've got like these different people like barbarians. You've got men. You've got women. You've got rich. You've got poor. It'd be like, you know, maybe a church today. Could you imagine such a thing? Where people are coming and maybe they have a Hispanic background. Or maybe they have a Caucasian background. Maybe some European background. Maybe they have an African background of some sort or another. Or an Asian background. 
Perhaps they are really, really wealthy or really not wealthy, struggling just to make ends meet. Perhaps they have a master's or a doctor degree or maybe didn't even finish high school. And they're all trying to find their way into a church. I don't know if you know any place like that at all. And when they come together, Paul's trying to help everybody understand God has a family made up of all of these. And oh, by the way, a bigger family, a spiritual family, which we aren't even fully can see yet, but we will one day. And all of us get the same name. New identity. My identity isn't Matt Nickerson. My identity is child of God. My identity is disciple whom Jesus loved. Are you with me? And then he goes on as it blows his mind. Because, you know, the church in Ephesus is struggling a little bit. I don't know if you know this, the church in Ephesus is one of the greatest churches, truly. It, it, Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent some time there. John, the apostle, spent some time there. Paul spent some time there. I mean, there's some big celebrity hitters in the New Testament spending time in their church. And by the time we get to the book of Revelation, which was many decades after this, Jesus warns the church in Ephesus, return to your first love, or I'll just remove your church. I'll remove your lampstand. Because the church is always struggling with backbiting and devouring. The church is always struggling with fighting and infighting. And, and Paul's trying to lay a foundation for them. We all have the same name. But it wasn't always that way. Because at one point, we were disobedient enemies of God. But not anymore. So he goes on, he says, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. May God strengthen you and build you up through your faith. May the spirit of God go into you and move you and stir you and direct you wherever he desires. And this is what we long for as a church, to be a church where that takes place where we are directed and guided by God's spirit. And I've learned a little more than some of you over my years of listening to the spirit, but I do not know everything there is to know about God or his spirit, and I'm still trying to figure it out. And here, let me just share something with you. One of my struggles as a pastor is I want to study God because I like things that I understand. Because things that I understand, guess what I could do? I could control him. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson, and I have a control issue. Maybe you can relate with me. And if I could just understand God, if I could put him in this nice little box that I've created for myself, then I can kind of manipulate what's in the box to do what I want to do with it. God's like, you better blow up that box, my man, because that ain't box ain't big enough. In fact, I think it's in the Psalms. I think it's in the Psalms. It says the, 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 uh, the whole cosmos, the whole universe is, uh, is God's throne. Like, that seems about the right size for God, right? The earth is his footstool. I don't have a box big enough. I just don't, but I wish I did. And when I'm in a dry season, when I'm too busy or too stressed or not rested or perhaps I'm being too tempted or sinning and maybe selfish and I'm not treating my wife with the love and respect she deserves or whatever it might be, and I'm not listening to his voice correcting me and rebuking me and calling me out through friends or through scripture, or whatever it is, what will happen in my job, and I can be guilty of this at times, is I will read the word to figure out what you need to do. Some of y'all know what this is like because you do it with your kids, right? So don't look at me like I'm that guy. I'm just telling you, I struggle with this. And I fight against it. And sometimes I don't fight against it. You know what? That's called a spiritual battle for me. 
Well, this past week, we had a staff retreat. And we were gathered at the Stafford Tree and uh, Aaron and Tana Molesky, who uh, grew up here, at least Aaron did, I, th- I think maybe they both did, I'm not sure, they've been married. Uh, Aaron and I went to Bible college together. He actually worked here for a while before I was here. And um, it's just a, a cool story. But God, they came into our staff retreat this past week. We retreated for a while and they just led us close to the Lord. And they said, look, we're, you guys have heard all the sermons. You know all the things. So we're not gonna sit here and do like five different sermons for you guys. What we're gonna do is uh, create some moments for you to interact with God and his word at whatever he wants. Well, here's one of the ways the Spirit led me. So as I was throwing things in my backpack to take on the retreat with me this week, um, I grabbed this journal. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you like journaling. Um, I like journaling, but here's the way that I journal. I buy a new journal every time I see one that I like. And then I have like 15 journals in my, in my staff closet. If you ever wanna know what I've thought over the last 20 years, yeah, you probably don't, trust me. But if you ever wanna know what I'm thinking about, what I heard at a conference, what I prayed about, it's in there somewhere, and they're all over the map. So I don't know why. Sometimes I would write in the middle of the journal, sometimes at the beginning of the journal, sometimes at the back. I know some of you are twitching already in the fetal position. You're like, what is wrong with this guy? And so they're out of order. They don't make sense. But the reason I grabbed this one journal is because there were like 10 or 15 pages left at the back of it. And I thought, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna finish this journal. The last time I wrote this journal, I think it was five years ago. But hey, why not now? Why not this trip? God had other ideas for why I would take that journal with me on this trip. So I took it with me, and during one of the sessions, uh, Aaron and Tana were speaking and leading us in worship, and I was just seeking the Lord, God, what do you want me to do? And it was the craziest thing. I, I don't have, man, I wish I had time for the whole story. Sometime we'll go to coffee, right? And uh, anyway, it was just cool how God led me through my journal to a couple of different profound moments in the journal. Like one of the things in the very, very, very beginning, the very first like journal entry I made was from almost exactly 20 years ago. I know it's hard to imagine I'm that old now, but I wrote in there something like, God, why am I so focused on what you might do or what you could do? instead of what you are doing. And then I wrote in, like I took another journal so I could capture like whatever God's doing at this retreat because apparently the last 10 or 15 pages wasn't gonna be enough for me. I don't know what I was thinking. So I wrote over there, I wrote that exact quote and I went, why am I still dealing with this today? And then I flipped forward and I read some things, I read some things and I found a date in July of 2009 and if anybody's paying attention, the date may jump out at you because I was literally talking with this church in Avon, Indiana called Kingsway Christian Church. And I was at this church in Colorado and I wrote this journal entry and I was just wrestling through, does God want me to do this or does he not? What's his calling on my life? I don't know what God wants to do in me. And I wrote this thing down and I I just said, God, what if they don't love me or follow my lead? Now, before y'all text me and send me messages telling you how much you love me, I, I know you love me. I do, but that was 13 years ago almost. I wasn't sure. Just to be clear, like a family from Kingsway yesterday found out that my family had been sick and that my wife had recently had some procedure going on and literally said, hey, can we bring you smoothies? So I know I'm loved, like I know I'm loved. And I live at, um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I gotta do that. But 13 years ago, where I was in my walk with God with others is I wasn't 100% sure. I was insecure in my relationship with God, so I was insecure in my ministry. Does that make sense? And while I was sitting here pondering and praying about all of this, God told me, I don't know how to explain God told me. He literally just said, I was just sitting there. I had nothing to do with the moment. I was waiting for God to speak, and I just felt like, literally, I felt like God said, I want you to go read Ephesians 4 for your sermon on Sunday. So I went to Ephesians 4, which is what I was supposed to preach on, but I totally cut it out of today because God said something different. And I said, oh, before I read Ephesians 4, I probably should read Ephesians 3, and I landed here. And then I read this. And Paul said, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp 
how wide and how long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I started crying when I read that because one of my battles is I wanna know more and know more and know more. I wanna know more so I could appear smart before you. I wanna know more so I can train you and equip you and do my job well. And I wanna know more so that I can control and manipulate God and maybe put him in that box. And then God just said, you know what's better than knowing about me? It's knowing me. And not just knowing me, but knowing my love which is far bigger and higher and deeper and more profound, Matt, than you can even begin to scratch the surface of. And it was as if God was inviting me to know his love. Do you know him? Because Paul goes on, he says, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You can't even get to the fullness of God until you got a grasp of just how loved and adored you are. Thank you. Spontaneous clapping from God, man, that's good stuff. Think about this. One of the other passages that God used to jump out at me, uh, it's, I wish I had more time, I'll tell you the whole story, but God used this moment in my journal and in my past to take me to Mark chapter three, where it dawned on me for the first time. And I don't put this on Facebook, maybe you saw it, but when Jesus chooses the 12 disciples, it literally he says, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Do you see that? So like, First, be with Jesus. Like above all else, doesn't matter what else goes apart. You wanna win your battle? Be with Jesus. But then, don't stop at just being with Jesus. Serve Jesus. Like be with him, be transformed by him, be changed by him, and then go out. And one of the guys that was there that day, one of the 12 Jesus shows, he's a guy named John, the apostle John. Now what's crazy is John wrote the gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He wrote that book. And John, when he writes his gospel, he doesn't actually call himself John. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what's fascinating about that is he wrote one of the most beautiful books in the entire Bible, but it's like he doesn't want credit for it. It's like he doesn't want a pat on the back because he wants everything to be pointed to Jesus himself. And his identity has been wrecked by this Jesus. His whole life has been flipped upside down by this Jesus. And as the story would go, John is one of the ones who the only one who was there that day of the disciples to watch Jesus be crucified. In fact, it was such a powerful moment that Jesus from the cross looks at John and says, today, this Mary, my mom, this is now your son and this is now your mother. And we know John took it very serious that he was supposed to care for Mary, which is why both he and Mary ended up at the church in Ephesus for a while because he took that responsibility quite literally and quite seriously. Well, this is powerful. So as history would tell us, John gets boiled because they killed all the apostles And John gets boiled, but he doesn't die. So they send him off to the island of Patmos, where we believe he wrote the book of Revelation. And when he's released from that exile, he's back in, um, back just traveling around, checking on the churches, encouraging the churches. And there was this young man that he won to the faith. And when he won this young man to the faith, before he moved on, he took one of the bishops of the early churches, one of the leaders, and he gave that man over as a responsibility. He said, okay, I want you to watch over and care for his soul. He went around, he traveled to other churches. When he made his way back, he found the bishop. He said, where is this young man that I led to the Lord? And he said, oh, it's terrible, John. 
he has gone away from the Lord. He's wandered away from the Lord. I said, what do you mean he's wandered away from the Lord? I said, he's, he's abandoned the faith. And not only has he abandoned the faith, he's a bad man. He does terrible things. He's evil, he's crooked, he robs people, he takes advantage of them. It's bad, John. Oh, it's bad. John, at this point, is either in his late 70s or early 80s. So you have somebody in mind? It might be the person you look in the mirror when you see every day. It might be your, your parent, perhaps. Maybe you're old enough, it's your child. Do you know anybody that you picture when you think of a 70 to 80-year-old man? So John literally says to those standing around, get me a horse and somebody direct me to where this guy is. Now, this guy has become not just a crook, not just an evil man, not just taking advantage of people and beating them up. He's become the leader of the pack. So John gets led to where this man is. And this older gentleman, he has like no fear. He is not afraid of pain or death whatsoever. And he demands to see them. And this is like the mafia. Like the guys who are kind of at the front of where this group hung out, they're like, yeah, no, you can't get to him. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna get to him. You tell him I'm here. And the young man comes out, and when he sees John, and he finally recognizes who John is, he runs away in shame. And that's when it picks up here. And a guy named Eusebius records this. And John looks at him and says, why, my son, do you flee from me? Your own father, unarmed, aged, pity me. Like, I'm an old man, come on, my man. My son, fear not. You have still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For you will I give up my life. Stand, believe, Christ has sent me. I'll preach, won't it? I want you to imagine for a minute. You were far from God. Maybe you've never known him. Maybe you've never received him. Maybe you turned away from him. Imagine somebody you dearly love and respect called you. Maybe they showed up at your door. We need to talk. And they looked at you with tears in their eyes and said, return to Christ. What are you doing? I know you've made some mistakes. But I will literally restore you to Christ and to other people, or I will die trying. I will give you every ounce of my life if you will turn to Christ and live. In fact, as Eusebius goes on and records, he says, John, pledging himself and assuring him on oath that he would find forgiveness with the Savior, besought him fell upon his knees, kissed his right hand itself as if now purified by repentance and led him back to the church and making intercession for him with copious prayers. Yeah, well, it gets better. I know, I know, but hang on. It gets better. And I realize this is a word salad. I'll make sense of it in a second, all right? Then he goes on and he says, and struggling together with him in continual fastings and subduing his mind by various utterances, he did not depart as they say, until he had restored him to the church, furnishing a great example of true repentance and a great proof of regeneration, a trophy of a visible resurrection. In other words, you're like, that's a bunch of words. I don't know what they mean. In other words, and I love this, John said, this man has deeply hurt others. 
So number one, I will make sure he's restored to Christ. And it says, I love this, the idea of baptizing him a second time. No, 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 you don't need to baptize a second time. That's not what he means. It means with his tears. John was so heartbroken that this man has fallen away from Christ that he fell to his knees and he was begging him and pleading with him with tears. Come back to Jesus. Then, in order to renew and restore him, the whole many utterances, that's like quoting the scriptures and praying over him and reminding him, refreshing his mind, here's your new identity, here is who you are, walk in this, live in this, don't go back, there's nothing for you there. And I love this, fastings. Could you imagine saying, hey, I'm not gonna eat while you reconnect with Jesus and rebuild and restore a relationship with others? Could you imagine John, this older man, coming in with this man? And everybody's like, do not bring him in here. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what he did to my sister? Do you know what he did to my cousin? Oh, no. And John's like, trust me. He's like, oh, it's not you we got a problem with, John. And John doesn't know how to change things. So John does a fight with physical hands. He gets on his knees. And he starts praying, God, restore this man. And he doesn't eat he doesn't drink until this man begins to be restored to the church and the church starts to something happens. It changes, starts to believe in him and trust in him because he acts different and he looks different and God's spirit is moving in all of them. Imagine a church where every single member took part in the handiwork of Christ like John. Because the truth is you wanna be a part of a church like that. But you can't be a part of a church like that until you become a church like that. You'll never find a church like that and be able to join unless you do it as well because you'll mess it up. You'll wreck the whole thing if you just show up and start taking from everybody else's passion for Christ. If you don't become passionate for Christ, the church, the church is us. It's not me. It's not a name. It's not a building. It's an us. So when we become that kind of passionate, we become that kind of sold out to what God is doing in the world, then we will be the kind of church that Jesus longs for us to be prisoners for our Lord Jesus Christ, for all that he has done for us. Amen? Amen. So here's my question for you. My last pastor used to ask this all the time. He used to drive me crazy because he'd make me think. Who is your high five? Who's your high five? In a moment, I'm gonna pray. Five names that God has been putting in your heart. I've been telling this story, I've been preaching this sermon, and you know, you know, it's your parent, it's your son, it's your daughter, it's your grandchild, it's your neighbor, it's your coworker, it's somebody from your small group. Here's what's happened in America over the last two years. COVID happened, and people are falling away from God left and right. Now we've gotten busy, we've got excuses, whether it's sports or work or a real virus, whatever it is. And slowly it's like, well, I'll just stay home and watch online. And I know some of you are homesick, watching at home, some of you are staff, I know, we'll see you on Tuesday. But the reality is this virus is real. It's real. About a million people in America almost have died. Millions of people around the world. Tons more have been sick. I get it. Nobody's saying it isn't real. But Satan, the member, the lord of this, the kingdom of this air, one of this world, he's trying to distract us from the bigger picture, from what's really going on. And some of us have let him win. And I am deeply afraid for your soul. God put this on my heart. Six, eight weeks ago, I was gonna use this illustration. I was gonna use this Sunday. I'm gonna call people to reach out to somebody. And I started thinking, okay, I can't be a hypocrite. So I was like, God, you gotta give me a name. And God put a name on my heart immediately as somebody he wanted me to reach out to, somebody who used to go to Kingswell all the time and, and, and hadn't seen in a while. 
And here, here's my thinking, all right? In my flesh, I kept going, all right, God, as we get closer to the sermon, maybe even after I preach the sermon, I'll reach out to this person, right? Like, I announced it publicly, now I'm gonna reach out and be like, hey, I said I was gonna do this. And, and God kept putting the name on my heart, and it's like, okay, I got it, God, I got it, God, I got it, God, I got it, God. And uh, I wasn't doing anything about it. And about two weeks ago, and I can't tell the story because I don't have their blessing, about two weeks ago, this person reached out to me. And then God arranged another conversation. And then God arranged, I'm not joking, if I, if I could tell you the details, you'd be like, whoa. And I'm just sitting there going, all right, God. See, what I, what I guess I didn't give God enough credit for is that he's actually at work in the world. <laughs> Imagine that. Like, I preach that every Sunday. But like I said, sometimes it's easy to give it away to everybody else and not embrace it, not make it about what God wants to do in me. And God was at work in this person's life. And God was not going to let me get away from my duty, my calling, my responsibility to pursue this person. Who is God putting on your heart right now? What name? By God's grace, we live in a world of technology. You may be able to reach somebody in another state, another country that before you wouldn't be able to get a hold of. There's so much access to people today. uh, One of these older gentlemen in our church, just a godly man, I wish you all could know him. He's literally worked at the prison as a volunteer for years and because of COVID, he's been cut down from like five times a week to one, he was telling me. But as soon as I said this, immediately five of his former students popped into his mind. I was like, man, we need some more Johns in this church. Who is God putting on your heart? What are you gonna do about it? All right, I'm gonna close with this. I'm gonna close a prayer just a minute, but before I do that, I wanna invite you into a story. So if you've been sitting here and God is stirring in your heart, we wanna be the kind of church that really, truly takes the gospel seriously. If you're not connected and serving at this church, it's time, it's time. We've been scrambling all weekend to try to get enough kids ministry volunteers, worship ministry volunteers. We've been having people drop like flies. This virus is real, it's gonna keep happening. It's not gonna stop happening, but we're gonna keep happening too because Jesus is alive and well. I want you to text, connect to 317-565-4911. If you're at home and you're watching, this is you, you've been sitting at home for too long, it's time to text, connect. If you're like, I still can't come in because I got medical issues, then it's our job to help you find a way to serve Jesus here in his church. That's all right. Like, we'll work with you to find a thing. Don't let no be your answer. Just say yes to Jesus, see what he does next. And maybe you're sitting there and you've never received Jesus, whether you're at home or here right now. If you're here, I want you to raise your hand. If you're ready to receive Jesus as Lord, we're gonna come to you, hand you a card right now. We wanna tell you more about what that means. Don't be ashamed. God's got your back. You just raise your hand and we'll come find you. And if you're at home watching and you're ready to receive Jesus, you text CONNECT to 317-565-4911. And what I wanna do is pray. I'm gonna pray specifically God gives you a name and I pray that it blows you away when he does. And if you don't get a name yet, then you're gonna keep praying all week till God gives you one. And then you're gonna start saying, okay, God, how do, I, how do I respond to this? What do I do now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are at work in this world and I'm so glad you are because I'd still be dead in my sins if you weren't. You're a good God, a faithful God. And you're pursuing us. You're pursuing our kids and our parents our coworkers and our neighbors. God, I, w- I was once an enemy of you, which tells me, God, that even my enemies or whoever I perceive to be my enemies, whether it's somebody on a different political spectrum or somebody who lives from a different country or maybe somebody who's been truly evil or cruel or mean towards me, God, if they are my enemy, you still want me to love them because you love them and died for them. Jesus, we thank you for giving up your life. But teach us, Father, encourage us, challenge us to be like Jesus in this world. God, give us a name right now, at least one. God, give us five names. And then, God, would you open doors? Would you create a path? 
Would you blow us away, God, with the ways that like you just organized this so that you put the name on our heart and then made it happen? And God, I pray for boldness so we wouldn't sit back passively and wait, but God, we would pursue you and pursue them in your name and in that way follow in John's footsteps. And God, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.